Uh, welcome to those who have been coming for a while. Uh, I do want to welcome a few specific people. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you, but I did ask your names. Bruce and Linda Pearson are here, Bobby's parents, so welcome. Welcome to, the, uh, welcome to service. Uh, I know Jessica Desper's here, uh, the, the boss, boss's daughter, Jessica. Uh, she's the one with the awesome, uh, two awesome boys, uh, that were mentioned, the aforementioned boys in the welcome. Um, and so also want to welcome the Winslows are here from the Richmond Church. Uh, welcome, Winslows. Uh, you know, if I've forgotten anybody, uh, I'm going to feel terrible after. So it's, it's inevitable, really. But welcome to everybody. Welcome to the Blue Ridge Church. Uh, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 3 this morning. So let's hop right in. The title of my lesson is I'm Dying to Know. I'm Dying to Know. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, this is the part of the book that gets to be uh, the more popular part. Uh, a lot of people like the verses, or great memory verses. Tim Tebow used one on his eye black for a long time. Uh, from Philippians, I believe it was four, uh, chapter 4, three, was it 3? No, it was 3, I think. I can't remember. But uh, uh, a lot of these are a lot of popular verses here coming up. And so what we're going to try to do, and sometimes when you read a verse you're very familiar with, a lot of times the verse does not hit you like it should. Uh, that familiarity can breed contempt. And uh, so I encourage you to, with this verse, I'm gonna, we're obviously going to preach on it this morning, but I encourage you to re, reread, reread, reread this verse over and over and over again until it hits you fresh, hits you anew. Um, because a lot of the things we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, we'll be very familiar. But it is an incredible passage. It's, it's powerful uh, as Paul writes through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3, verse 1. Uh, Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul is addressing a big issue, a big um, heresy, basically a, a rival viewpoint of what it means to really belong to the family of God. It wasn't necessarily happening in Philippi that we know of. But obviously there was some kind of temptation. And we know from reading so far, Paul's mentioned suffering quite a bit. So we can deduce that the church is going through some kind of suffering. And as he begins, he says, listen, rejoice in the Lord. And as the Bosches have done this morning already, they've set the table for that. Listen, rejoice is, is actually uh, not really rejoicing if it's just coming from material gain or something that's conducive to happiness. or That's, that's, that's temporary. But to, the call is for us to rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings. And that is incredibly difficult. Because what the Philippians were probably going through is they were suffering for the gospel. And it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's not like I you know, hit traffic this morning, so therefore I, I've suffered like Christ. Um, no, it actually is suffering for the gospel, as Paul will mention later, suffering in the same way that Jesus suffered. But they're actually tempted because of the suffering. Now, what do you do when you're most tempted, or when you're, when you're suffering, what's the temptation? Well, it's to pull back. It's to adjust a little bit to avoid pain, uh, to, to go the, the, the path that's a little easier. Uh, because suffering, we always think, well, suffering must be a bad thing. Either A, because the immediate pain involved, 
or B, I must have done something wrong with God. Uh, and we do this a lot spiritually. We do this a lot with little things uh, in regard to God. And so what the Philippians were probably facing is they were really in a, they were in a rough spot with their faith. And these other guys come in, these dogs. You know, Paul's, this whole thing is littered, by the way, with um, wordplay that we don't really get in English. But uh, he, calls them, he calls them dogs here. Not a good thing. Uh, but he's saying, listen, these dogs come in. And we, we, have very, uh, very, uh, we have a puppy view of dogs in the West. We love dogs. But in the Middle East, dogs were, were not so, so great. Street dogs, uh, not so awesome. But anyway, they're like, oh, he's calling them dogs. That's nice. Um, not so much. But he calls them dogs. He says, listen, they're coming into the fellowship. And they're saying, you know what? Maybe you're suffering because you're not really part of the family of God. Maybe the reason you're suffering is, is that you're doing something wrong. Maybe the reason you're suffering is, is that you haven't achieved, you know, the highest level spiritually yet. Maybe you need to get your act together and maybe you need to conform uh, basically in your outer appearance and the inner appearance as well. And that would basically be uh, food laws, eating kosher, all the things that a good Jew would do from the Torah and observance of days, the Sabbath. But most of all, the big one is the the circumcision. Uh, So for men, it would be to actually go get circumcised. And this preaching was, listen, if you actually then become ethnically and like physically, if you actually adhere to uh, Jewish customs, then you'll actually be one of us. Then you'll be, be part of the family of God and you won't be suffering for nothing. And so they were, they, were, they were kind of attacking the heart of the Philippians a little bit. And the Philippians were tempted to actually, in a weird way, become more religious uh, to avoid suffering. So they were willing to conform to their legalistic church's standards uh, just to avoid the suffering uh, from others. And so Paul's writing right at this and addressing what's going on here. And I love what he, what he says. We have no reason for confidence in the flesh. Like, why are you trying to gain status via your flesh? And then he goes, you want to play this game? We'll play this game. And you know what? If we did play the game, I'd win it. <laughs> if we're going to keep reading. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, basically confidence in their abilities or their, their uh, track record, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He says, listen, I've done it. I've achieved all the things that you're trying now to achieve. I've been there. I tried to achieve status through my track record, through my ethnicity, through my blood, through my... The Pharisees had a very strict code. They memorized the Torah. They knew the Bible. They, they gave money. They gave contribution. They were always at the temple. They were always at church. These guys were like so committed. And Paul says, I achieved the top of that commitment... But you know what? It didn't go anywhere. This is a dead end. It didn't get me what I was seeking. And in a lot of ways, we do the same thing. We try to find confidence in our status. Uh, you know, Facebook got rid of the status. I used, used to be able to have a relationship status. And I remember men used to say like so-and-so and so-and-so are no longer in a relationship. And like the whole world would know. And so like we all went away trying to break up like secretly. And Facebook changed our lives. But, um, you know... <laughs> You, you're, because you're concerned about your status. Uh, and even if you look on Facebook, we all, no one ever posts, like usually like 
for the most part, like consistently depressing statuses, right? It's like, usually like, I had a great day today with a great, you know, angle with the lighting is perfect and it's nice. And everyone's like, oh, my stat- we want our people to think our status is good. We're doing well. Things are going our way. But we find, I think, as, as 21st century, you know, uh, uh, Western thinkers and, and people who live in the United States of America, one of the ways that we can find status is through material gain. We live in a world where material gain means a lot to advance uh, in UVA. If you told somebody that you had two degrees from UVA, what do they usually say? Oh, wow. Very good. Very nice. You know, if you tell people about your status in academia, about your material, your people, you have a nice, oh, nice house. Whoa, you're doing very well. You know, we, we, uh, we make it together. We make them synonyms, this idea of material gain with your status. And uh, we, people look down on you if you don't have that material gain. It might not even just be that kind of material gain. It could be another type of material gain. It could be comfortability. But what the Philippians faced was their vision of what Christianity really was, was being dimmed, was being skewed uh, by the temptation uh, to basically avoid this pain. And in the same way, we can try to avoid this, this discomfort, this pain, and we dim the goal of Christianity. And because it's hard to help your kids have godly convictions, we avoid it. Because it's, it's difficult, right, to deal with our hearts in regard to our spouse and dig up those painful memories. But to really get there and forgive, we avoid it. Because, uh, and so on and so forth, right? Because talking to our classmates about God may cause them to kind of give us the, oh, okay, what, all right, here he goes again. You know, we avoid it. There goes Jesus guy talking again. And so we avoid that pain. But one of the things that the Philippians do, which is incredible, is they're tempted to become more religious. They're tempted to start doing these things a certain way. And we've been there. I've been there on both ends of this. I've seen someone else do something and I've thought, I would never do something like that. How could they ever do something like that? That pernicious pride, uh, that religiosity of looking down at someone. I've had people tell me like that before. Like, Drew, you did what? Man, you must be in sin. You must be, you know, a word we used to use was struggling. You used to... You must be struggling because you did this or that. You watched that certain movie. You, you stayed up past a certain time. And we can apply legalism. I know it's coming from a good heart. Okay. But we, we can apply legalism and say, if you don't adhere to this, this code, then you are not in God's family. You're now out. You know, in a lot of ways. Do I have the thing? Oh, here it is. Um, in a lot of ways, it's uh, the Torah. Basically, and, and the Torah provided for them a tape measure. It, it provided them, okay, if you do this, do this, do this, you'll be able to then be good. If you get circumcised, if you, uh, uh, you know, observe the Sabbath, if you uh, observe food laws, if you do what we Jews do, then you'll actually be able to be okay. And I think the issue is, is that you and I have a really hard time trusting God, so we begin to put trust in this. And we put trust in the tape measure. We put trust in the yardstick. We put trust in measuring how we're doing. And that scale depends on who you are and what day of the week it is and... You know, a lot of different variables, but it kills us. The performance track record mindset is not a new one. It's one that they faced as well. They were struggling with. And Paul says, listen, I made it to the end of the tape measure. I made it to the end. Paul was big stuff, even to the point where he was at the top of the food chain. He's like, man, I was even persecuting other church. I was so zealous. I was so full of this, this, what you say is righteousness, that I was actually killing other people. I had lost, lost all hope of what God was trying to do in my life because I was just trying to stick to this code. I was trying to stick to these rules. Now, rules aren't always a bad thing. Rules are a good thing. Restrictions are a good thing. 
But what I'm trying to say is, what kind of Christianity are you living this morning? There are two types of people that go to church. For the most part, I'm going to generalize here. There's two types of people that go to church. There are religious people and there are true Christians. Which one are you this morning? Are you religious or are you a true disciple of Jesus? We're going to talk about the difference between those two things here in a second. Let's keep reading and finish in verse 7. So Paul said, Paul said, watch out for those dogs. They're going to come and they're going to try to tell you that you've got to do these physical things to be loved by God. But here's the thing. Don't listen to them. You know why? Because look at me. I did it. I went for it. And it didn't get me anywhere. The status that I craved from the money, from the job, from the women, from the sex, it did nothing. It did not get me there. The status that I craved from climbing the spiritual church ladder of like, oh, wow, he leads songs. Okay, he must be good now. Or, oh, man, wow, he was asked to do communion twice in a month. He must be doing well. Oh, my goodness. How, how's that going? You know, like, even that, and that might be more where we are, is finding the status, our status within this room. Either way, we're still, we're addicted to the tape measure, to the yardstick. And in verse 7, Paul says, but whatever gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You know, we can struggle a lot with how to really go after Christianity and really pursue God in a way that God actually wants. A lot of times when you talk to somebody about why they're a Christian, they may say, well, I want to be saved, right? Salvation. Salvation can be kind of the main reason why someone seeks God initially, right? Not, not unnormal. Uh, and so the other thing that we can do is we can make it, well, I want to be a Christian because I want to be a good person. Ethics. If I, I want to, being a Christian has values that I agree with, so I want to have those, those values as well. But Paul says this is not the way to go about being a disciple. This is not the way to do it. It's still a yardstick. Because you're still going to fall short of being a disciple, by the way. You're still going to fall short in this ethics ruler that you've built. You're still going to fall short. You're talking about salvation. Well, I want, to, I want to be saved. You're still going to fall short of salvation. For all of sin and fall short of that glory of God. We're not, going to, we're not going to make it. And Paul says, you're missing, guys. You're missing. And don't let those dogs convince you. Don't let them teach you something that's different than what actually is going on with what it means to know Christ. And that's what Paul says. I consider it all garbage. I consider it rubbish. I consider it street refuse considered to what I have now. And what I have now is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So for Paul, what is it? What is it to actually strive to be a disciple? How does that look? Well, to know Christ, to know Jesus. Now, a lot of us know about Jesus. You know about him. You've heard about him. But do you know him? Oh, I know about Jesus. Yeah, I've done the, the, you know, I did the Sunday school classes and the kids ministry classes. I went through the Bible study series, you know, and and I I did the follow-up study series. And do you know who my parents are? I I know that stuff. I know it. You know about Jesus, but do you know Jesus? Yeah, come on. And, you know, 
uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus brings a great challenge. Let's turn over there in a second. Actually, let's go right now. Uh, Matthew 7. This is a great challenge. You know, a lot of us, this strikes the heart of a lot of us because I don't think we're aware of how much stock we do put in our track record. And how many times we do have that thought that's like, well, at least my son's not as wild as their son. At least our kids, you know, don't do that. You know, at least my marriage isn't that bad. You know, at least we do that. And we have those, those prideful thoughts that basically tell us that we're good. But they're the same thoughts that kill us when we, when we realize, wow, I'm not there. They're the same thoughts that drive us to depression or drive us to anxiety when we're, our performance won't stand up. That cycle will kill us. That cycle will destroy what it means to follow Christ. And sadly, all we will do when we convert people is just make more disciples of Pharisees. We'll just make more and more people like us who have to adhere to a certain code and do a certain thing. And who knows why we do it, but we do it. Because you know what? That's the rule book. That's the way it goes. And if we can accept each other based on that. But all we do is create a whirlpool of, of deceit. Right? Because then people know, i got to obey the rules. So now what, I'm, what am I going to do? I'm going to bend those rules. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell people about those rules. If it's not about knowing Jesus, it's just about uh, appreciating and accepting uh, or rather just it's about loving each other, then I'm going to be way more concerned with what you know, Ryan Grubb or Andre Gould think about me. And I can trick them a lot easier than I can trick God. So deceit becomes kind of the, the main way to go in terms of following Christ. And that's a very, that's a very scary thing. Deceit's scary. What's going to happen here in Matthew 7 is self-deceit, which is the most scary of all things. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, hear it, church, many, a lot, many. And this is not the atheists or the agnostics. Or the, this, is, this, is, this is people who know God. This is people who, they go to church. This is people who have a track record. Many of those people, many of you in this room will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't, didn't we perform in your name many miracles? Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a list. I haven't done any of those things. They have a better list than I do. They prophesied. They drove out demons. They did many miracles in his name. It wasn't like just them. It was in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name I pray. They probably said that at the end of the prayer. I don't know. But this is for all, it's for your name. Jesus goes, I get that you've done all these things. I get that you got to 10 feet or 12 feet or whatever the standard is that you have. But you didn't know me. This is a salvation issue, church. More than that, this is something that affects us now, day to day, minute to minute in our walks here as we try to live as a light here in Charlottesville and in Harrisonburg and everywhere in between and beyond. How can we really know Jesus, not just know about him? This is scary here. I love this passage because Jesus goes on to explain. Read it later. He goes to say, listen, if you want to know me, uh, he says, you got to hear my words and you got to do them. Uh, It's not just enough to hear them. You got to do them. You got to put it into practice. And that's the first step for all of us. And a lot of us know that, but we don't want, I don't want to gloss over that or take it for granted that you should know that, that you should do it. But I'm going to assume that most of us are striving to hear his word and to do it. That's the first step. That's crucial. You will not be able to know Christ if you don't listen to his words and then apply them. In the same way that I will never, ever be able to really know my wife if I never listen to her 
and don't strive to do what would please her. Strive to do what would encourage her. If I never adhere, never give heed to anything she says, how could I presume to say I know her? How could I presume to say, yeah, we have a great friendship, a great relationship? Uh, same with family. Uh, you, you know, I, I know Rob Jeffers, but I have a feeling that Kathy knows Rob a little better than I do, and in a more intimate way than I do, in many ways, his daughter. Like, family, daughter, sons, like these relationships are different. It's a different kind of knowing, isn't it? It's a knowing that indicates personal experience. It's a knowing that says, I know him because that one time, remember, we were driving down 64. There's experience, right? You went through things together. There's, it's intimate. What have you experienced? Jesus says, I know you did all these things, but we never experienced anything together. We didn't go through anything. I, we didn't go through anything together. I don't, I don't know you. You can see how for Jesus, it's, Jesus doesn't want to make more religious people. But he didn't come to say, well, we should really... How can we expand membership? And we've got a you know, real strategy for planting churches and expanding membership. What in Jesus? When Jesus ascended to heaven, when the Son of God did his best at planting seeds, he had 100 and, was 110 disciples total with him when he ascended to heaven. 110, right? Jesus. Jesus was not here to be popular. He wasn't here to do something that everyone's going to love. Yeah. He says, I want you to know me. And we struggle with that. We struggle to trust Jesus, and we'd rather put trust in ourselves. We struggle to put trust in him. Trust is just another word for faith, right? Right here he says, uh, not here, but back in Philippians, Paul says, this righteousness doesn't come from adhering to the tape measure. This righteousness comes from faith, a.k.a. this righteousness comes from trust. This righteousness comes from trust in Jesus. How's your trust going with Jesus? So all this to say, all right, Drew, I hear you, but how do we really know Jesus? Tell me the formula. Give me the formula. What is it? Step-by-step instructions. Where's the handout with the cool acronym that makes sense and is catchy and I can really you know, have a handle on it and bring it to work the rest of the week as I go about my life? Where's the formula? Where's Jesus? I want to put him in my pocket and have access to him whenever I need him to fix things for me. You know, this is not the God that we worship. Yeah. I want to tell you right now, there ain't no formula. Yeah. There's no formula. Jesus doesn't say, here's what you got to do. Now, we got to read our Bible. we got to pray. We gotta do what he says. But beyond that, a lot of you a lot of you have done that. I did that for years and never knew Jesus. I didn't really begin to know Jesus until February 16th, 2003, when I sat in Anthony Galang's living room with a tray full of uneaten chocolate strawberries because I had no appetite. Uh, because we had just talked about what I had done to Jesus on the cross. I'd heard the crucifixion story before, it wasn't new to me. This is not about more analysis on your part. This is not about more data. This is not about, I'm missing probably some, perhaps some part of the formula. This is not about more data, more analysis. But having the truth of God hits you. You know, the truth of God, when it really hits you, it's like, uh, it's like something that you've always known, but it becomes real. Um, when I was uh, at Virginia Tech, I was a student intern in, full, in part-time ministry. I always wanted to be a minister ever since I was eight. Um, it wasn't a very pure feeling. I think I was mad at a friend and I... And I fantasized about preaching and then putting him down and it wasn't good. I had to get my heart right when I was eight. I had to get some discipling and get that dealt with. But I always wanted to be a minister. I always did. And when I was in college, things were going according to plan. I had become a part-time intern, Virginia Tech, a growing campus ministry. I had popular, I was popular, I had friends, things were going quite well in my opinion. My tape measure was, you know, quite full. Uh, And uh, it had been exposed. I had hidden several of my friends in the same month, my buddies. Uh, had, had sinned, and, you know, in, in serious ways. And instead, when they came to me, instead of calling them to repentance, and instead of bringing them to God, I said, hey, 
don't mention this to anybody. Let's keep this between us. I didn't want it to reflect poorly on me as a leader. So I told my three friends, I said, listen, these things have happened, but let's not uh, talk about this. Let's not let Forrest find out. Forrest was the church leader. And, um, well, Forrest found out. And um, I remember Forrest asked me to step down. And uh, step down as, you know, campus minister. And it was very difficult for me. You know, for, for 12 years I had built up this idea of status in my head that would be achieved if I could simply just be this minister. And it was dressed up beautifully in the guise of spirituality, of religiosity, of who could blame me. I just want to serve, right? And I said the right things. I knew how to play the game. I'd been going to church for a long time. I knew how to confess just enough to get somebody off your back. I knew how to be deceitful. And sadly, I was self-deceived. I hadn't seen where I was. And I'm grateful that Forrest sat me down and said, something has to wake you up. Something has to shock you out of what you're doing. In the same way that we have church discipline, the goal is to to help that person realize the seriousness of what's happened so that they might be saved in the day of judgment. Like, this is more serious than now. This is about you and Jesus. And I remember the midweek there, and I was crushed. I didn't stay very long. I left, and I called my dad. And my dad, I'm very close to my dad. I love my dad. If I could be half the father my dad is and was, I'll be a great dad. Um, but my dad, is, he's the one who kind of began the legacy of faith in the family. He became a disciple at Kansas State. He was the first one to do it through him, his sister, uh, my uncle, um, my mom, my, my, my brother and sister. You know, the whole family, really, he's kind of the, the spiritual patriarch, if you were. So calling my dad and telling him about me having to step down and why was very difficult. I'm not an emotional guy. I've cried like five times in my life. This was one of those five. Uh, but I, I, I cried with my dad on the phone. And my dad said, son, I'm proud of you and I love you. And I just lost it, just started crying, right? Just lost it. Was that new information to me? No. Had I acquired new data? No. I'd always known that. But in that moment, the same way a father hugs his son, uh, it becomes real, it fills you. It bubbles over, it, it overflows. It, it, it becomes not just the truth that you understand, but the truth you stand under. It becomes so much of everything it fills every part of every part of particle of your body. It's like a lightning rod, okay? When a lightning bolt hits a lightning rod, it just fills it and it lights it up and it's magnificent. This is what Jesus is talking about. You can almost hear it in Paul's voice as he writes this. He's like, well, watch out for those thoughts. And he just kind of loses. He gains kind of a crescendo, like a momentum here of like, you know what? I did that stuff. I tried my best to acquire status. It did not work. It, I didn't find happiness or joy. I didn't find the, the hug of acceptance from my father that I thought I could achieve by my uh, behavior. I couldn't do it. You know what? I count all that stuff garbage. I count it. And it's, that word he uses is garbage. is kind of a coarse word. He's just saying, listen, do you not get it? It is nothing. It's worse than nothing. It is a waste of your stinking time. It's a waste of God's time to go about trying to please him like that. You cannot do it. He just wants to know you and he wants to be known. Are we striving to really know Jesus? And if we really know Jesus, it's, it's a truth that you've always known, but it's a truth that begins to change you. It's a truth that begins to fill you. And when I sat down in that living room in 2003, I'd heard that stuff before, but it hit me. It hit me in a different way. It filled me. You know, knowing God is moving from analysis to intuition. Knowing the truth helps us move from something you understand to something you stand under. Knowing the truth goes from something that's detached to something that connects everything else. You know, when we know about Jesus, it's sort of a, oh, I know about him, I'm detached. But when we really know Jesus, uh, everything we see changes. 
everything begins to connect. Uh, you know, something you know about and something that is versus something that overshadows you, something that overwhelms you. You know, a lot of people know about this idea of Christian art, that when you're, when you're a Christian, when you're a true disciple, all art changes. And it's the idea that actually all art in general is beautiful because it reminds us in some way of Jesus. Um, and a lot of the 21st century philosophers have said that young people are very disillusioned with um, church and finding hope in Jesus and God. So they've changed to finding hope uh, and security in material gain, in money. But namely, they've actually changed it to like mythology. Like the, uh, you guys all you know about the Avengers. You know, Caleb and I, when we hang out, we like to go watch the Avengers. We have great conversations. I love the Avengers. That's kind of like the new Greek gods, right? Like we like, oh, you know, he's so cool. Iron Man, he does this, he does that, he does. You know, for me, I love, I love DC. I love uh, DC Comics. And I love Superman because Superman, he reminds me of Jesus. And even in the movie Man of Steel, when the people, uh, the people don't, they, they hate him. They don't want him. Get out of here. But he says, I, I still have to die for them. I still have to love them. I still have to protect them. You know, I, I love Green Lantern. Green Lantern's creed. Uh, I'm going to geek out here just for 30 seconds. Uh, then I'm going to bring it back. But Green Lantern's creed is, you know, on brightest day or blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. For those that worship evil's might, beware my power. Green Lantern's light. All right, cool. So why do I, so Green Lantern, I'm, I'm back now. Green Lantern, it's so cool. He's so cool because he shines light in the darkness. He says, if there's evil out there, I'm about to expose you, man. That's John 3. That's 1 John 1, 3. That's the Bible, right? I love Lord of the Rings. I get chills at the end when Sam says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. I promise I'm not going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. And I think, oh, that's Matthew 28. You know, I'll, I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'm with you always to the very end of the age, Jesus says. Right? We just saw the movie uh, Coco. I love Coco. And little Grandma Coco. She's so, she's so beautiful. But Coco's all about remembrance. And the whole the song there is called Remember Me. And I'm thinking, remember me? That's communion. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Never forget. In fact, do these physical things just to remember what I've done. I got emotional at the end. I'm just seeing Jesus in all these things. This is Jesus, 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 Jesus. He, he is what makes art beautiful. No matter what it is. Even the things that have been turned and twisted by the world to become coarse and inappropriate. There's still a nugget of Jesus in there that they've, they've, they've manipulated and mutilated. But everything that makes this beautiful to us is Jesus. Jesus, it goes from just, oh yeah, I know about Christ, to, no, he's changed everything for me. He's changed everything. The way I view dating has changed. He's totally like a lightning rod, filled that whole concept up and radically changed it. Marriage, oh my goodness. I never realized what marriage is, right? I, a lot of you guys know, I've led this church for five years. Uh, I counseled marrieds before I was myself married. Thanks for your patience and humility. And but something I saw is a lot of people that from the world would get premarital counseling or just marriage counseling. Oh, my goodness. Totally different. Totally different than the marriages we get to see in the church. And it's not because we're better. It's not because that we actually have a better tape measure. It's because that Jesus, like a lightning rod, has changed it. He's changed it. It's different. The nature of marriage is radically different and opposite than the nature of marriage in the world. He's filled us up. We're bubbling over. It's personal experience. It's intimate relationship. You know, Paul, back in Philippians, does something incredible. He almost never does this. He says, the surpassing greatness of knowing the worth, knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He says, he's my Lord. He almost never does that. He always says, our God, our Lord. He always is very communal. But in this moment of raw honesty, 
And this, you can almost feel, you know, like just the fervent writing on his part. The surprising, or the surpassing knowledge, the, the great worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. You know, Galatians 2.20, he says, my Lord loved me so much that he died for me. It's personal. For Paul, it was. I want to know this guy. I want my life, as he says later in the verse, to be conformed to his death. You know, a true Christian always has a spirit of wonder, of amazement at the fact that they are a Christian. A religious person isn't, of course, Christian. Are you a Christian? Yeah, of course. Of course I am. Of course God would. Of course God would send Jesus to die for me, of course. I've been a Christian my whole life. and Yeah, why not? Of course. You know, when you go get your paycheck, uh, do you get there, and, or if it comes in the mail, you open it, and do you, do you go, Ah, behold! My paycheck, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it just fills me. Oh my goodness. You don't do that. You go, darn right, I work for this. Of course it would come, because they owe me. And when we're religious, we say, God, you owe me. Of course, why haven't I got what I want? Why haven't I got, like Marie said, this this expectation that I want, God? Why haven't you met my needs? Of course God would do this for me. Of course, we believe if we're religious that God is in our debt. But when you're a true Christian, you're always in his debt. There's always something more you can do. You're always amazed. Are you a Christian? Oh, it's amazing. You should have known what I was like, man. You should have known. I never should be here. It's a miracle that I'm here. It's wonderful. It's amazing. We cannot lose that sense, church. And if we've lost it, we are on a dangerous trajectory. A treacherous slope toward religiosity, Phariseeism, and deceit. And sadly, the end, self-deceit. To the point where you don't even know how lost you are. And when you see Jesus at the end of time, you're going to argue with him. Because it doesn't make sense for you. Your whole spiritual mindset was based on the tape measure. And now you're realizing, my goodness, I never actually knew the guy. I never actually went through it with him. And what Paul is saying is, we got to live life that knows Christ. How do we do that? What's the best way to do that? is we got to transform our lives. we got to conform our lives to be like his death. Everything about the way Jesus died, that's got to signify our life. Last thing I want to say is how can we really know Jesus will be trustworthy? How can we know that he's someone that we should put our hope in? Well, we can, we can, put, our future, we can put our hope in that future because we have it, had, we've had it in the past. Jesus has already been loving. He's already gone through it. He already showed trust and love in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed for you. He already showed self-control when he could have slandered people at the Sanhedrin. But he doesn't. And like a lamb before the shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. He didn't blame anybody else. And as he went to the cross, he took care of his family. He said, son, behold your, uh, John, behold your mom. Mom, behold your son. Take care of each other. He forgave people that had no idea what they were doing. He remained silent. He didn't speak up or defend himself. He didn't try to hurt anybody else. And he was patient. And he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. And the reason Christ did that, the reason he did all of that, is not because he was trying to achieve some status, not because he was trying to to make God love him. He did it because he loves you. And he did it because he, he was always overwhelmed with a sense of God. Every time Jesus is asked why he does something, what does he say? Well, my father, that's how he does it. Uh, My father, that's what he would do. That's what he said in the Old Testament. You probably remember. My father. Everything Jesus did, he was filled. It was a lightning rod of wonder and amazement. A lightning rod of, do you know God? Do you know me? 
Jesus just wants to know you. And if Christ has loved you and sacrificed this way for you, you can put that money in the bank that he's going to deliver on his promises. He's going to be patient with you. You're going to mess up. He's going to forgive you. He's going to say, hey, listen, take care of each other. He's going to put people in your life. There's people in your life right now who are calling you to some truths that may be uncomfortable. Jesus is going to watch over you. He's going to give you everything that you need and more. The question is, do you want to love him back? You know, are you an awestruck disciple? Are you amazed at what Jesus has done? Do you have a sense of wonder at your relationship with God? Or are you an of course Christian? Are you just, yeah, of course. Of course I am. Uh, Are you the paycheck Christian? Of course Jesus would give me what I want. You know, the problem with that is when things don't go your way, it gets real bad real fast. Why didn't God give me what I want? Why did God allow this to happen? And we're missing the point. We don't know Jesus the way that we should. When you go through suffering and your friends abandon you, what does that say about them? You know, the best way to know Jesus is to suffer with him. Every time you suffer, even suffering for a Christian is is not meaningless. Everything we do is shot through with the the truth of Jesus Christ. You're suffering if you are going through some kind of spiritual suffering right now. Perhaps someone's rejected you or someone has called you a name or someone has distanced themselves from you intimacy-wise, then you can say, my goodness, this is tough. But Jesus went through this too. And I get a chance to be like him. I get a chance to know a little bit more about him. Not just to know about his suffering. I get to know his suffering. I get to actually experience that with him because his mom abandoned him. His brothers called him insane. His friends left him. Everyone gave up on Christ. Even, Even God ostensibly didn't answer his prayer the way he wanted him to. My goodness, Jesus went through that, and I, get, I'm, I don't feel like God's answering my prayer. Oh, my goodness. I get a chance to really know Jesus better. Thank you, God, for this opportunity through suffering to really know you. That's a really, really tough thing. It's really tough because every part of us wants to go into defensive mode and name the eight things that went wrong, or if these things would have been different, it would have all been different. You know, I want to give us a challenge. Last week, there was a memory scripture challenge. Uh, to pick a memory scripture that you want to really go after memorizing because it's something you want to work on, something you want to see. I want to give us another challenge this week. Don't give up on that one. Keep going. I'm doing Ephesians 2, 1 through 11. It's a lot longer than I thought, so I'm hanging in there with it. And there's a lot of run-on sentences, so I wish there were a few more periods in there. Um, just like keeps going. But uh, the challenge this week is the amazement challenge. And uh, I just want to encourage us, um, focus on one thing this week in a quiet time that just amazes you about your relationship with God, that just fills you with wonder. And it may take time. It may mean you go back a few times. It may mean singing some songs. Pick some songs to sing. It may mean memorizing some scripture. It may mean doing it with somebody else, not doing it alone. I don't know. This is an adventure. There's no formula. Jesus is not a tame line you can put in your pocket for access at all times to fix things that you need fixing. Jesus is a relationship. Being a Christian, being a disciple is an amazing adventure where you get to discover the hills and valleys and nooks and crannies, you get to find that out with God. Seek Him. Go after Him. Embark on this adventure. That's my challenge for you this week, is not to make it, well, I did my quiet times, now God must love me more. Forget that. That's garbage. Oh, I've prayed, now God will probably answer my prayer about getting that A on that test. That thinking, we are are just uh, uh, indoctrinated with that thinking. It is a disease. We've got to strive to know Jesus better because if we can then have that heart, nothing can ever touch us. Satan will never touch us and death itself will have lost its power. And we can look forward to the resurrection. But you know, this this morning, we can only look forward to the resurrection if we've experienced death. And so as Paul says here, we can hope in the resurrection. For those of us this morning who have not yet died to our sin, made the decision to die to that former way of life. It's a simple decision. It may not be easy. 
It's a simple decision. Uh, just to, I encourage you this week to make every effort to study the Bible. Bring some people into your life. Talk about the hard things. Get to know them as they get to know you, and all of you can get to know Christ. And as you get to know each other and know Jesus, then something you probably have known for years will hit you like new. Something you may have heard a thousand times will shoot through you like a lightning bolt. You will bubble over with wonder and excitement, and it'll be an adventure. And we can all, in our lives, uh, die, but we can also, we can die primarily every day. We can die to know Jesus and die to know him all the more every day with everything that we have. Amen, and to God be the glory.